Hi, I'm Billy Shore. We're coming up on our annual Chef's Cycle Ride on May 13th. Hundreds of chefs and restaurateurs begin an arduous three-day, 300-mile ride in Santa Rosa, California. It'll raise millions of dollars for our No Kid Hungry campaign. It'll be the fourth time that I've done the ride, even though I'm not a chef. Uh, but it's an exhilarating experience, and it has such an impact on our No Kid Hungry program. If you'd like to join these amazing people in their work to end childhood hunger, just go to chefcycle.org, chefcycle.org, and click on the map of California to find out how you can make a difference. Hi, this is Debbie Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. And I'm sitting in for my brother, Billy, who is on a train because, hey, it's the first day of spring and there's a snowstorm here in Washington. We have two terrific guests today on the show. We have Mike Friedman, chef in Washington, D.C., with the Red Hen and All Purpose, about to open a new restaurant, which he'll tell us about. And James Siegel, who um, I'm really excited to hear about today, who is the CEO of Kaboom. So welcome, both of you. Really happy to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Mike, I'm going to start with you. Sure. Uh, The Red Hen is one of the most popular restaurants in Washington, D.C., and this competitiveness is getting more and more fierce by the week in Washington. So For sure. How do you how do you stay on top of that? Well, uh, thank you for the compliment. I uh, appreciate it. Um and it's a pleasure to be here with both of you guys and uh, just really happy to have the have the moment to step away from the restaurants and talk with normal people. <laughs> thank you for that. My pleasure. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we we opened up the Red Hen in 2013 as one of the first, what I believe to be, neighborhood restaurants. Uh, we weren't trying to recreate the wheel. We were just trying to make delicious food, trying to be fun, trying to be approachable, and uh, trying to have the right price point so that it wasn't a special occasion restaurant, which is it's turned into, um, but it was an everyday restaurant. And we still have patrons that come three, four times a week and just jump in for a plate of pasta, a glass of wine, um, and they're out. Since then, the industry has boomed. Right. I mean, it's gone crazy. Bloomingdale blew up. It's been almost a hundred percent turnover on real estate property there. Uh, you have the Shaw area where I've opened my net my second restaurant all purpose. Um, and then you have obviously Capitol Hill area. You have uh, H Street. I mean, there's been so much. There's been so much growth in this city. And, and to a certain extent, it's kind of scary. We try to stay ahead of the game by being consistent. And I think that's really important in this kind of hurricane that is the industry in D.C. right now with the growth. We try to stay in the eye of the storm where it's nice and pretty and sunny and nothing's really affecting us. And that's been really successful for us. Um, We haven't tried to change who we are or what we do. We haven't tried to create a different narrative. We've just been that same neighborhood restaurant that you can rely on. And, um, you know, we we are super happy that people still come back. Uh, We're very humble about that. We try to give the best hospitality that we can. Um, and I think just staying true to who we are is, has kind of kept that success at a, at a high level, yeah. whereas you see a lot of restaurants falling to the wayside in, in even the five years that we've been open. Well, there. so do you feel like you have to keep opening restaurants? Mm. Do you feel like you have to grow beyond the one in order to stay on top? Or do you just feel so inspired and compelled to open the second or the third restaurant? It's a great question, and it's uh, a, probably a little bit of both. Um, biggest reason we wanted to open a second restaurant was that we had amazing staff and we had to keep giving staff opportunity or else obviously they'd leave because there was other there are other growth opportunities out there 
We had an opportunity to open up in Shaw before that boom really hit, and we took it. Um, and the third one that's opening up uh, in a couple of weeks is in Southeast at the at the waterfront, Capitol Riverfront, right across the street from the Nationals Ballpark. So um, that's the place. That is. We saw an opportunity there as well. I would tell you now, and we can listen to this podcast two years from now, but I don't want to open more restaurants. I think that three is a great number, and I think that the city has to expand and then contract. Um, and you want to be around when they contract. Oh, 100%. Yeah, exactly. yeah and, I, and, right. I, and I believe that we will. And, and you know, the biggest success that we have had is, is our staff. Um, I think it's really important to note that the people that work with us are passionate. They are energetic. They are enthusiastic. They believe in in the in the product uh, and they believe in hospitality i think that's the biggest thing throughout all this the thread that um, follows into every successful business is that idea of hospitality um, whether it's building a playground and and figuring out your your clientele is really important and that hospitality has to come into play at some point because at the end of the day if you're not making people happy I, you got a problem yeah james uh, such an incredible career um, that you've had as uh, currently ceo of kaboom and before that, Chief of Staff with the Corporation for National Service and VP of Nonprofit Programs and Practice at Independent Sector. So obviously, you know, a lot in common with Share Our Strength with our organization mm-hmm. that's fighting child hunger. And I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you about was what trends you see in the nonprofit world right now. Well, first, I started out in the nonprofit world like everyone else. I started out as a corporate lawyer. And uh, saw a, a very different side of uh, how you help people and bring people together. And then from that, I had the very fortunate opportunity to do a lot of pro bono work at the firm I was at, Paul Weiss, which was really committed to pro bono work, and uh, see experience and and get to know how nonprofits change the world through my uh, work as a lawyer. And I think that that provided me a very interesting perspective on how you make change happen because I always came at it from a multi-sector perspective. And I think that the the biggest trend in the nonprofit world is the realization that you can't do it alone. And what that means is figuring out how to work productively with the corporate world, which Share Our Strength has done so well, and also figuring out how to make change happen in conjunction with government partners. Uh, something also that Share Our Strength does really well. And I think looking at the world from that perspective and seeing that it takes everyone rowing in the same direction to make change happen is, uh, I think, where we are now and where we will be for a while. And tell us a little bit about what Kaboom does. So Kaboom, we're a national nonprofit organization. We've been around about 22 years. And our purpose is to ensure that kids have the opportunity to play, which is just the fundamental aspect of what it means to be a kid. And we were started by Daryl Hammond and our founder. He read an article in the Washington Post about a brother and sister who were two and four years old in southeast D.C. who, in the middle of a summer heat wave, went looking for a place to play, couldn't find any good place to play, climbed inside an abandoned car, got trapped, suffocated, and died. And so the Post reporter went out looking in their community to find out why this happened, to make sense of this senseless tragedy, and could not find a place to play within the neighborhood. And so that motivated Daryl to act, not to start an organization necessarily, but to solve a particular problem for that community. And that's how Kaboom built its first playground, 
bringing the community together side by side with each other, rolling up their sleeves to uh, create that playground. And we've been doing it ever since. Uh, this Friday, we'll be building our 3,030th playground. Wow, congratulations. All across the I've country. done a few builds. Yeah. I've done amazing. three yeah. builds. And you've been on our board. And I have. You've been a ter- terrific partner in our work. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's really exciting to hear how many builds there are. Um, I, you know, one of the things that we have in common, our two organizations, is sort of this uh, vision around the importance of understanding what success means to both organizations because I think um, it, you know, that, that varies everywhere. And I know you and Billy kind of penned an article about this together at one point with, I believe it was with the Stanford Social Innovation yes. Review, um, tackling some, both of us, right, we're working on Shattered Hunger, you're working on um, the importance of play for kids. And how, how have you decided to measure uh, success and define that for Kaboom? I think it's changed over time, and I think we're living in a moment that's different. I think everyone feels that way, and you feel like communities are divided more than ever. Um, and you know, uh, wherever you are on the political spectrum, you're feeling that disconnection in your lives at the neighborhood level. Um, and you know, it's great to hear Mike. You talk about you being a neighborhood institution because th- those institutions are falling by the wayside in many sure. communities, and so. Um, in that environment of communities that are coming apart at the seams, what we're finding is that the way to measure success needs to be much more short-term and immediate to capture a sense of urgency to make change happen. And so, yes, play is critically important for childhood development, and you can measure that over decades, and kids are going to be uh, smarter, they're going to be more creative, they're going to be more physically healthy, they're going to be more socially and emotionally well. And the way we go about doing our work, transforming the built environment and communities with community at at the table and taking on a leadership role creates social cohesion. It creates a sense of neighborhood safety and it creates a sense of community pride. And those short-term measures are key indicators. And those are measurables also, right? You can measure a neighborhood's crime rate. Absolutely. And so we're measuring those things because we know if you want to get to a place where kids are better off, you need strong communities, and strong communities are cohesive, they're safe, and they have a sense of pride about who they are and what they want to do for all residents. You know, we focus a lot on the outcomes of um, when children don't get enough to eat and when they don't get proper nutrition. For a long time, we just talked about childhood hunger, but then we, we learned, of course, that you know kids who don't eat don't, don't do as well in school, they are sick more often, and we had a study commissioned by Deloitte a couple of years ago and, you know, what we learned was that kids that eat breakfast in school average 17.5% higher in math scores, specifically math, right. which leads to higher graduation rates, I think 20%. And then from there, you can extrapolate what that means for their future. And so we talk a lot about when kids eat, they do, you know, very specific outcomes. And I think what people don't realize is when kids don't play what that does to their psyche, what that does for their, I guess, general level of happiness. I mean, can you can you give us some examples of kids that you've seen really change after they've had access? And, and I imagine, too, that there's, that there's some equity issues in play. Uh, absolutely. All, all our work is about addressing inequity. And if you look at it from the school perspective, a lot of us who have kids take for granted that you go to school, you have a nice place to play in, in the schoolyard, um, kids are in recess, they've got uh, PE, and they're active, and that activates their brain and makes it easier for them to learn. 
the reality in most cities across the country is that there are elementary schools that have broken asphalt, and that's about it. And so it truly is an equity issue. How, how do you create an environment where it's easy for kids to be active so that they can go back into the classroom and learn well? How do you integrate activity into the classroom so that uh, the learning environment is fun and engaging? All those things are absolutely critically essential. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, so much of it correlates between what you do and then, you know, you were talking about that study with eating breakfast. And I remember reading a study that involved the idea of how many calories to take in, you know, good calories versus bad calories and how they equate to physical activity. Fascinating to read in the sense of, you know, do you pump a thousand calories that are kind of empty calories into a child so that they can run around and have that mental capacity? Because I know if my daughter doesn't eat breakfast, she's a mess. If she eats a, a unhealthy breakfast, she's better. If she eats a healthy breakfast, she feels more balanced. Right. And, you know, the idea of taking 500 calories that are actually helpful for you that help brain function. It was an interesting article and there was no cohesion between the two. It was just fascinating to read about. But yeah, they're not all equal, these calories. Right. I mean, right? it, it really is yeah. all about inequity. And it's something something I learned at that. Uh, I did a James Beard retreat in Vermont where we learned a lot about the Farm Bill and SNAP and, and you know, the kind of effects of what will happen if it's uh, changed. And um, the, the ripple effect is huge. And it, and it goes on not only on the short term, but it goes on in the long term and, and into the sense that uh, communities can be saved or they can they can fall. And that's really what we're dealing with. And it's one of those issues, too, and there are probably a lot more like them, where you don't really see the immediate impact of hunger. Hunger is invisible, for one thing. You don't know if a kid is not playing well. There's no way of knowing that, really, by looking at the child, right? So there's another similarity there. Right. And it makes it that much harder um, to address and to get support around. I think what's interesting in terms of the intersection of what all of us uh, do is that what we're really talking about, just like getting back to the basics, like what does it mean to be a child? It means that you're you know, enjoying food. It means that you're active and playing. Uh, it means that you're getting a good night's sleep. And all those things are related. And I feel like sometimes we overcomplicate things. And the conversation is about how are we training kids to be adults mm-hmm. as opposed to how are we creating an environment where they can be kids and can thrive. And if we can do that well, they're going to be set up for success. You, you must have some uh, questions about what kinds of risks you're going to be taking in playgrounds be, at, when you're bringing in some new innovative ideas into them. Absolutely. And there have been plenty of articles written in, in The Atlantic and other places about uh, overprotected kids and the need to expose them to risk. I actually have a slightly different take on it. Um, you know, obviously, as a parent, you are both protective of your kids and you want them to experience life and learn from it. And the way I like to think about it is that a lot of the kids that we serve already have a lot of risk in their lives. Their neighborhoods are unsafe. Um, They're, uh, you know, feeling all of the difficulties associated with growing up in poverty. And there's a lot of risk associated with that. And so I, I don't see us as in the business of creating more risk in those kids' lives. And, but I do think there's a role for challenge. And an easy way to think about this is you can create a rolling log on a playground. And if it were six feet off the ground, it would be dangerous. A kid could fall. They could crack their head open. They could break a leg. If it's six inches off the ground, they may skin a knee. 
And it's they, still a challenge. They experience the same challenge trying to get from one side to the other. And so I think oftentimes we spend too much time trying to introduce risk as opposed to seeing it through the lens of, of challenge. And I think there's a lot that we can do to introduce challenge in a way that's not perfectly safe, but it allows kids to experiment and take the the right type of risks that are not going to lead to any serious harm um, and continues to place a, a premium on creating a protective, safe environment for children. How does, you know, just an interesting question for you, James, how does, how has technology played into what Kaboom does? Like, have you seen a variance in the last 10 years with the um, advent of smartphones with iPads? You know, I know that my kids, and again, I can only go from personal, um, personal relations here in the sense that um, my daughter loves watching my phone. Uh, she also loves going outside and playing, but and she goes downstairs. This is and, the four-year-old. This is the four-year-old. Yeah, my my one-year-old. Does, she loves she loves going to sleep. Um, but how does that how has that affected what Kaboom does? Have you seen less kids on playgrounds even even after the builds, um, or is it something that kids just immediately flock? It's it's really interesting. We did some uh, research a few years ago where we uh, surveyed kids directly, ages probably around 5 to 12. And what we asked them was a question that a kid can answer, which was, would you rather play the latest video game or would you rather go on a zip line? Mm. And overwhelmingly, kids said the zip line. Good. And I think what that suggests is that the debate around technology has been about how you place limits on technology, but it hasn't been about creating a compelling alternative. And kids know what the compelling alternative is. It's to get outside and it's to play. But it would have been a, would it have been a different answer if you said a, you know, a slide? I mean, you gave them a compelling alternative, yeah, not and, just an alternative. Yeah, and a, a, definitely a compelling alternative. Yeah. I, I, I think that what we're seeing is, in general, you've got the acceleration of childhood, which means that kids are growing up too soon. And we see that on playgrounds. So playgrounds technically cover a range from 2 to 12-year-olds. But when you look at the data, it suggests that girls age out of playgrounds around 9 or 10 and boys age out of playgrounds at around 7 or 8 because they're looking for something more challenging. And sometimes the only alternative for challenge is the video game where you can constantly level up. So what we're looking at is introducing innovation into playground design to make it more challenging for older kids to stay engaged with playgrounds. And some of the things we're looking at are things like, you know, the Ninja Warrior style play space Mm -hmm. created in community as a free asset uh, where everyone can benefit from it. On technology itself, we're also looking at integrating technology to enhance the reality of real-world play. Technology is not the enemy. You can't put your head in the sand and think that technology is going to go away. How do you harness the power of technology to create a better real-world experience? And we're on the stages of trying to figure that out. James, what what goes into identifying the area that you're going to do that you're going to build? And do you? Yeah, that's that's the question. We focus on kids growing up in poverty. And so we're looking for opportunities to fill a gap in communities where kids growing up in poverty are uh, living and learning. But you'll, will you refurbish one that is not being used or will you build a brand new one or both? We, we do all of the above. If we feel like there's an old playground structure, playgrounds typically are intended to last about 15 years. 
But what you see in many cases around the country is playgrounds that have been there since the 70s and 80s. And at that point, it becomes unsafe. And oftentimes what you see is investment in ripping playgrounds out of the ground because they're too unsafe, but not the investment in replacing them with anything. <laughs> right. Um, and so kids lose out in that equation. And so we go into communities. We assess what the opportunities are for kids to play in, in the surrounding area. And we find those opportunities, whether there's nothing there or there's something that's completely inadequate. And, and we and try we, to fix that problem. And will you respond to a pull strategy instead of the push strategy? Or will you all, in other words, are, is the community coming to Kaboom? And saying we know what you do, we want to we want a playground in our neighborhood. Yeah, we get a lot of incoming demands that we can't meet, um, and you know that becomes a question of resources. Uh, we're we're never at a loss for communities that need playgrounds. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I wish that were the case. Um, what, and- what's the delta? Do you think then? Do you have any idea of like how many more there should be in a given city? Knowing it it that. depends. It, it depends by city. It, it, um, it, what we look at is: are there the? Is it being solved at a system level uh, within a city? So you look at public schools and you say, okay, how many of your public schools have places to play? And I can tell you from our experience in places like Baltimore and St. Louis that there are a lot of. Uh, elementary schools that don't have play spaces. We look at it from a housing perspective. Um, we're working with New York City Housing Authority right now, and throughout all New, New York City Housing Authority, they've identified 248 developments that need new places to play. Um, and that's a huge proposition in terms of the resources needed to fix that problem. But if we fix it, we'll be creating play opportunities for 100,000 kids. Wow. So that's how we look at trying to find the need that we can fill to reach the most kids that are going without the opportunity to play. One last question before I turn to Mike. Um, Thinking about one of the things we do is um, we have a a proof of concept, right? Once we go into a market uh, or a city and we're able to say we have provided access for all kids to get breakfast, lunch, dinner, weekend meals. We're not there yet, but we, we have that proof of concept. Um, do you have the same sense of a proof of concept around playgrounds or play or outcomes for, for Kaboom? We we definitely do from the perspective of looking for those opportunities to work in depth with certain municipal systems. Because I think if we can solve the problem with New York City public housing, it's but something that's what that, made me think of it. Yeah, that, that can apply in other cases. Yeah. We can solve the problem in a particular public school district. We can apply that uh, to other places. And then we're also looking at the community change that can happen uh, in addition to playgrounds out in the community. So one of the things that we've been working on in depth is integrating play opportunities into everyday spaces and communities. What we call play everywhere. So on the sidewalk. Yeah, I want to come back to that. Yeah, I really okay. want to hear about the the non playground uh, kind of play that you're that you're so now inspirational. Creating. Yeah, I love that. It's, it's unbelievable. Uh, Mike, that's me. Measuring success, uh, nonprofits. We're talking about measuring success, but you have to measure success too in the restaurant. And I would imagine it's not just financial success. So, how do you think about success for the Red Hen and All Purpose? Uh, I think obviously, if you're not financially successful, you fold. Um, but apart from that, and we're very lucky to be successful financially, um, a couple things for me as, as a chef, I think that, um, all my kitchens are open kitchens, so there's no walls in between the dining rooms and the kitchens. Uh, and I did that on purpose, uh, twofold one, 
I can see the enjoyment on people's faces, and adversely, I can see if they don't like something very quickly, and I'm able to react. Is that why you did it? 100 percent. Well, I, I also want. I, we talk about immediate satisfaction, and, and not unrelated to what James does. Is is restaurants are they, living in the moment. Um, if if someone doesn't like something, I can pick up on nonverbal cues and pretty much get a manager over there or go myself because I'm so close to tables. If I'm expediting a, a service and I'm able to handle it and deal with it. And that usually makes people's experiences all the better. Um, the other one is just for me and it makes sure that I can keep my kitchens really, really clean um, because we have to, because we're on, on display. Um, but I think that um, part of that measuring of success comes from immediate satisfaction of guests. I think employee retention is huge, right? If people want to leave, then, um, you know, it only has to do with money, then I didn't do my job. I didn't cultivate the right culture. Uh, we've been very lucky to have people stay with us since day one. My pasta guy has been cooking pasta at Red Hen since day one. Oh, you have to be um, proud of that. That's terrific. Oh, incredibly proud. And, and, and again, it goes back to employees. Um, and I think that the I think that the last thing is just community respect. I think that's really, really important, um, not only from the neighborhood. You know, we, we, I think that's kind of a common thread rolling through this conversation, uh, because we are a part of the neighborhood of Bloomingdale. <clears throat> we do events. We do nonprofits. We make sure that the streets are clean. We're a part of that that process. Um, but also from the community of chefs that are around us. And it's a small knit community here in D.C. Um, and when I opened up Red Hen, I wasn't looking for accolades and awards. I don't have a I don't have an ego. It's not you know it, it, my name isn't splattered anywhere. Um, I wanted chefs and cooks to come to Red Hen on their days off. That was the measurement of success for me. Mm -hmm. And if I had had that, and not to discount any other clients that come in through the doors, but um, to have other chefs come to your restaurant in, in that world is a uh, is, and want to be there as as community as patrons, as you know, patrons, and and, right. and something that um, my director of hospitality, Jared Barker, likes to say is that if chefs are coming and bringing their families, that's like the ultimate. Or even just restaurant industry people come and bring their moms right, and dads. Right, mm -hmm. right. That's kind of like a oh, we did it. Well, I, I've been there, and uh, it took me a very long time to get a reservation. I'm hoping this new relationship we have will be a little easier for me. I can me. give you some tricks. I'm hoping. I, I need I, to learn. I can, I need I can to pass learn. off some, some advice. Because actually, when Billy's in town, the family, we've tried to get into Red Hen, and I try to remember to do it a month in advance, but haven't haven't made that happen yet, but I'll, I'll keep at it. Yeah, we're, um, we, we are busy. You are and, busy. And after five years, it's wonderful to say that. Right. Uh, because it's uh, it certainly is a measurement of success that we're still standing. And um, all purposes... You're opening up a second all-purpose. I'm is opening that right? second all-purpose because I'm that crazy. <laughs> I uh, yeah, our first restaurant, um, all pur our first all-purpose. I'm sorry, is in Shaw, um, right across the convention center at 1259th Street, and it was just a. It turned out to be a, a love letter to my youth, growing up in New Jersey. I, I don't believe in opening restaurants just to open restaurants. Um, I think that if there's an opportunity from a nostalgic standpoint, I usually try to attack that when. Um, Red Hen opened, I didn't think that my food would be nostalgic to me, and it ended up being very nostalgic in the sense that there's a lot of uh, Jewish inflection to the food. I'm a, I'm, I grew up in a Jewish household within an Italian community, so kind of had the best of both worlds with food, but I didn't, you know, I don't have a story of sitting on my grandmother's table rolling matzo balls. <laughs> right, I don't have right. that story. <laughs> right. I, I fell into cooking yeah. uh, because I loved the team mentality, and when you talk about kind of correlating corporate 
industries, you know, uh, private sector, independent sector, all that stuff. You know, restaurants are a team sport. Um, and I played hockey in high school, and even before that, I was terrible. I was a terrible, terrible hockey player. But I was the biggest cheerleader on the bench, and I just loved being part of a team. Right. And so when I fell into cooking, what was enamoring to me was the idea of being part of something that was bigger than me, that we were going into service together, and we were getting out of it together. And and the beauty of uh, the restaurant is that if you have a tough service, it's just one service, and uh, you have a clean slate the next day. This notion of being involved in something bigger than yourself, which I think you can relate to, James, with Kaboom, and I know we can relate to in a big way at Share of Strength, is such a powerful notion, and it really plays into a lot of things. But this, you know, we believed when we started the organization that if we could give people an easy way, a vehicle to contribute uh, their strength, their talent, their skill for something greater, that they would do it. And in fact, that was as, it's as true today as it was 34 years ago. People want very much to find a way to give back. Um, and you, you've done a lot in the community. So what are, what are some of the things that you're, you've been, I know you're passionate about kids and we've been lucky enough to have you involved with some of uh, No Kid Hungry's work, but what else are you interested in? Oh my gosh. Uh, I mean, uh, I I think I've done every event in D.C. Um, at some point or another. Um, honestly, right now, what where my passions lie is with children's needs. Uh, I think that um, No Kid Hungry, Taste the Nation, um, you know, dealing with food insecure housing is, a, is, is an issue. I think uh, food in schools is really big for me. Um, I also deal a lot with March of Dimes um, for did, kids. Did having need. kids change that for you? Was it monumental? Yeah, I mean, it was like a, the earth cracked. Yeah, you know, to your point, James, in the sense of you know, you don't realize, and and we're, you don't realize how lucky you are. I think, and that's a big thing for me. Is I grew up in a, a healthy household. I grew up in you know rural New Jersey, um, and was able to have a great upbringing. And then I went to school in Boston, and and I saw you know other sides of that coin. And then even having kids now, and I live in, you know, I live in suburban Maryland now uh, with uh, two daughters and a wife and a house. And if I want to go to a playground, it's a quarter of a mile down the road and we walk. My daughter's school has, you know, recess every day in their playground and uh, at a Montessori school out there. And when I started to do work with James Beard Foundation, with their impact program, with No Kid Hungry, and it, it was like wiping the glasses, so to speak, and seeing that how just shocking the other side is and how real it is and how current it is. I was lucky enough to be a part of a James Beard Foundation chef's boot camp, and it's something that is rather new in the foundation itself, which does so much other things than awards, and and that's why I love it so much. Um, But they gather a group of chefs, and they fly them out to a certain location. For me, it was um, in Vermont, right on the river. Absolutely amazing. Um, And we learn about how we can make an impact in our communities um, and in the country at large and and how our voices put together can actually make a difference. Because a lot of times chefs do so many events and we're asked to do so much. Um, You know, I probably log about a thousand hours a year outside of my restaurant just doing events or prepping for events um, or going to events. And there's nothing wrong with that. I love it. But um, to Seeing con- the impact makes all the difference in the 100%, world. One hundred percent. But I think the idea is that you can actually um, condense that and concentrate that that time and that effort and put it into something that actually produces change. Um, and I think that's something that I really loved learning about when I was in Vermont with uh, with JBF 
and uh, something that you know I still keep in touch with a lot of those chefs that uh, I was in that community with, and uh, we have a lot of fun talking about the change that we can make and pushing ourselves to do better in our communities. The biggest thing that I learned over the years is that we as chefs, we as restaurateurs, um, we're in the hospitality business and we want to give back. I think that's part of the biggest part of nonprofits um, in general, but we, we have an impact as well. You know, and we've, we've been to Capitol Hill. We've, we've sat up there with um, lawmakers and talked about the Farm Bill, talked about SNAP. Uh, Tom Clico was a champion of that. Uh, Jose Andres, a champion of that. And obviously, James Beard Foundation, really large in that effort to, to move this forward. But the idea that we have that opportunity to do something that is bigger than ourselves is very important, at least to me, apart from a paycheck, apart from anything else. I, I'm a very strange person. I tend to live my life in perspective. Uh, my father died when I was you know, in my mid-20s, and it changed my world a little bit mm-hmm. and, and accelerated my need. I became a glutton for life. I uh, met my wife, had two kids moved five times in three years, built two restaurants into my third. So, I mean, I, I, I want I want to do it all. Mm-hmm. You know, now in this kind of, in this effort to, to help the community, I, I feel the same kind of need to keep going. Right. Well, I, you know, I'm thinking about, for me, what a playground did. And I can't believe I hadn't thought about this in advance of seeing you, James. But so I'm a single parent of a 16 and a half year old daughter, and I live in Calorama, a triangle area and there's a wonderful uh, playground right on right on uh, Columbia Road and I took her there when I don't know she, the first time I walked outside she was three weeks or something and the people I met at that playground set the foundation for everything big that I've done with my child in That's 16 awesome. years our nanny the schools the friends the neighborhood the doctor the I mean everything came from that from that playground and we've stayed really close all these years of course all of our kids are in different you know schools and some are in different cities but we met there and we had community there and it was really really powerful yeah um, I, I remember growing up and again playing I played roller hockey growing up but there was a spot outside of Jefferson Elementary School we called the map and it was a piece of asphalt with a big map on it and we you know you didn't have to even talk to anybody you just knew that you were going to meet there at 3:30. Oh, there it was, and and it's uh, it, it becomes intertwined in the bedrock of who you are as a as a person. And, and James, speaking of playgrounds, what are some of the other ways that Kaboom is creating play for kids? So we've looked at we actually worked with this uh, behavioral science group, Ideas Forty Two, because we were concerned about there being barriers to, that keep kids from playing, and we wanted to understand what those were better. And they had two key insights for us. They said that first of all, you go through the whole day without even thinking about play, so you compare it to food and. Everywhere you go, you're confronted with a choice between the healthy option and the unhealthy option when it comes to food, whether you're at the grocery store or going out to eat or you're just opening up the refrigerator at home. And so behavioral scientists can take that moment and try to default you to the healthy behavior, like putting fruit and vegetables, produce in an easily accessible part of a grocery store, for example. But when it came to play, there were no natural moments during the day when you're forced to think about it. And then once you do think about it, there are all these hassle factors that add up in your head. So you're, you know, you talked about walking your kid to the playground a quarter mile away. You're also thinking, do we have the right clothing on? Do we have the right supplies with us? It's like 45 minutes. Is it a safe (laughs) trip across the street, not just for me, but for my kid? And all those little hassle factors add up and make it too easy for parents or other caregivers to say, sorry, now's not the time to play. 
And so we then took a look with Ideas 42 at what we could do to overcome those barriers. And the key insight, which is obvious after you say it, is that you've got to integrate the opportunity to play into the everyday routines of kids and families. And so when we looked at how low-income kids were spending their time, it was often with their uh, parents or other caregivers running chores, doing errands, and the like. And so then we started to look at, well, what if we embedded play opportunities along the way, on the sidewalk, at the bus stop, in front of the laundromat, in front of the grocery store, the place to eat? And so we started that journey a few years ago, and now uh, we've catalyzed over 100 play spaces like that across the country. Great ideas, some that are are just really, really inspirational, others that are just really whimsical. I'll just give you a couple examples. In Miami, they transformed dead-end streets, which had been the site of uh, all sorts of illicit activity, dumping and, and, and uh, other uh, illegal activity using local artists to basically paint graffiti art on the uh, dead-end street in a playful way and then setting up a concrete barrier so no cars could go there. And all of a sudden, kids come out of the woodwork. They're outside. They're playing. One of them had hopscotch painted in it, Mm -hmm. but none of the kids knew how to play hopscotch. So then what happened was that the grandparents started teaching their grandkids how to play hopscotch. And all of a sudden, you've got this multi-generational space where kids are playing, what we found out later is it's become the new hotspot for date night. Like, who would have expected that, right? Um, <laughs> for young teens or yeah, to, just... Yeah, young adults. Who, um, so an amazing transformation. On the whimsical side, in Minneapolis, someone installed a rooftop bubble maker that just shoots bubbles down onto the sidewalk below. Heard about this. Whether you're a kid or an adult, like, when you see bubbles, it just changes your perspective, right? It's true. It just changes your mood. It changes your worldview. And so... Simple things like that that change the dynamic and basically invite kids and families that this is your place and you're entitled to play here. And so right now we've got over 100 projects and we're, doing, we're continuing to do much more with that. There, there must be so many best practices that you collect, right, from playground to playground and then just keep improving the experience, I would imagine. I mean, do you codify that in some kind of manual or book, or is that, a, is that an yeah. intentional? So, I would imagine that's a really intentional piece of the business. Yeah, and I would say it's in, in two ways. We, yes, we certainly codify the, the solutions, and we just released a playbook that can any community who wants to integrate play into their uh, everyday environment can go there and get inspiration and, and tools for how to do that. It's also about how you go about creating the space. Because you can't just plop down a play space and think that kids are going to play. It's a community-building endeavor that's required in order to activate the space over the long haul. And so what we look for is the opportunity to create catalytic moments and really give people a cathartic experience. And so when we build a playground, it's in six hours. You show up on site, 200 people don't know each other. You get randomly assigned to tasks. You roll up your sleeves, and six hours later, you've transformed a vacant lot into a new playground. And you can imagine the feeling that that brings of people have ownership over what they just created, and the community is proud of what they just created. And so they take care of it, they use it more, and they also go on to do great things in their community. We started doing a lot of work in Baltimore after Freddie Gray was killed. 
and uh, the first project we did in Baltimore after that was at Gilmore Elementary School, which is right next to Gilmore Homes, which is a large public housing complex in Baltimore where uh, Freddie Gray uh, was uh, right before he was killed. And at that school, they had an old playground that was taped up because it was too unsafe for kids to play with, play on. And uh, we built the playground there, and they told us, you'll never get volunteers. And we had to turn Because of the away. neighborhood. Or Be- just yeah, because of people weren't engaged. political climate. P- political yeah. climate. People weren't engaged. We looked for 200 volunteers. We had to turn away hundreds of volunteers um, because so many people were interested in doing something. And even more magical, what happened afterwards was that that school formed the first PTA it had in over 30 years. They built a brand new library. They got books donated. And all of a sudden, you create this ripple effect where one act where you demonstrate that change is possible creates an energy that catalyzes a whole community. So cool. That's great. I love it. Uh, I I wanted to ask you, um, Mike, about uh, your path to becoming a chef because a lot of the chefs we talked to fell into it, as you said you did, but I want to understand a little bit more about (laughs) that. And they have another profession sometimes in their head that if they weren't a chef, they would be something else. What would that be for you? (laughs) Well, let let me think about that for a second and I can talk about my path a little bit. Sure. You know, I graduated from Boston University with a public public relations major. Uh, and a minor in American history, um, and hated it. Uh, you know, hated hated. Well, I'm sorry. Let me back up a second. I, I went after that. I went into uh, selling radio airtime. Oddly enough, as I'm sitting in a radio station, but I sold radio airtime for an AM station called uh, WBZ in uh, in Boston. We sold Patriots and Bruins airtime, but um, wasn't for me. Uh, and I left and uh, ran out of money. I came down here where my parents had lived in uh, Chevy Chase, and they lived in an apartment. I was regrouping. I was going to move to New York. Early 20s, I had a lot of anxiety, um, and my mother had filled my room, which was uh, just an extra room in their apartment, with cookbooks. And I ended up grabbing them at night because I just needed something to read, and this was before smartphones and everything like that. And I loved reading cookbooks. I loved loved the process, loved the pictures. I think my analytical mind kind of clued into it a little bit. And I said, you know, I'm 21 years old. I, I might as well scratch it off my list. I'd worked in an Italian deli growing up since I was 15. I'd made my own money. So, um, and I promised myself when I left there, I would never go back. Um, the deli changed owners um, and the original owners who were the Snells, George and Zena, uh, they were amazing people. Uh, his mother made the rice pudding, made the coleslaw, uh, made the potato salad, and the Snells ended up selling the uh, the deli, and a uh, a new owner came in, and he was very very mean to me, and uh, at seventeen and been there, and I felt like I had put a lot of you know blood, sweat, and tears into that place. Um, at seventeen, I think it left a bad taste in my mouth that things could change so quickly, and I just you know I walked from the place. I was you know going to college anyway, and um, I just said to myself that. If this is how this industry is, I don't ever want to be a part of it. Right. But um, I ended up getting a job at a French restaurant, and I and I loved it. And uh, from there, I made enough money to go to culinary school. Graduated there. I uh, felt like I had to catch up a lot, so I, I bounced around D.C., Charleston, L.A., San Francisco, New York, Philly. And um, 
And a bunch of international travel as well. I did a bunch of international travel, yeah, both with Think Food Group with Jose Andres and then on my own um, traveling throughout Italy, Spain, um, at, with my mother, a lot of it, and, and doing kind of a, a bonding moment, um, and then on my own, just cr- trying to see culture and, and feel something different than what I would, had always always been a part of. And I'm sure that was a huge uh, source of inspiration for it your food. It was, yeah. I mean, you know, it it, it, it changed my mentality and, and, and just changed my thinking about cooking at, at the time. It, fine dining was really, really popular, and um, not to say that's not as popular now, but... Um, I was interested in something simpler. You know, I I, uh, I read a quote once that um, before Coco Chanel left her house, she would take off two pieces of jewelry. And I try to follow the same idea when I cook, <laughs> is that I try to be a little bit more minimalistic than I need mm-hmm. to be. Um, and it usually works out. So how has that experience uh, informed the way you currently manage your team and think about your employees? Well, I think that Anybody you ask that has you know, worked for me or, or works with me now is uh, is that I do put employees first. I think it's really important. And again, we talk about that team atmosphere, that team mentality, and that um, it's a team sport. You can't do this thing alone. You can't run uh, a service at a restaurant by yourself. Uh, it is impossible. Uh, you have to remove your ego. You have to remove your anger. You have to remove everything and, and try to get through it together and in a positive way and um, deal with the issues at hand afterwards. And um you know, treat people with respect. These people come to work and they want to be in a positive environment. And we are able to, you know, what I think uh, provide that in a, in a really loving way. We feed everybody. Um, we make sure that we're teachers and not screamers and um, make sure that, you know, every day you uh, learn something and every day you make a mistake. Usually those two correlate. And uh, that's the biggest thing I tell my guys. We had uh, Alex McCoy on mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Lucky was, Buns. It was, it he's was, a great man. He's a wonderful man. Yeah. And he was talking about, he went to Bangkok. I think mm-hmm. it was Bangkok. Yeah. And how inspired he was. He went there without any money, um, you know, with no place to go. He just kind of went. And I w- wanted to see what, you know, the experience was going to be like. And he talked about just learning how important the simplistic ways of cooking are and how you don't need a lot of equipment, you don't need a lot of things, you just need your mind and your hands. You know, yeah. I thought that was so powerful because mm-hmm. he said it's all in, in here, you know? And yeah, I mean, for, for me, the meeting of the analytical and the meeting of the physical were really important for me to be, to find something at such a young age that made sense for me in, in a long-term career. You know, it was a it was a career versus a job move, and um, you know, my dad always told me to find something you love to do and then figure out a way to get paid for doing it. Yep. Mm-hmm. So you know, whether it's helping people or cooking or um, you know, helping childhood hunger, we we always we all try to figure something out that we love to do. We only have a certain amount of time here, so right, right. might as well make it worthwhile. In terms of something I would do if I wasn't a chef, hmm. I don't know. I think I, you're probably where you where you should be. Sounds yeah, like to me. you know. I think <laughs> I, after I would, being to both of your restaurants, you're where you should be. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think somewhere in the teaching realm, I'd probably be if I wasn't oh, if I wasn't cooking, I'd probably be teaching something. I think I have a I think I have a knack for that in terms of you know, especially having daughters. And they say that you know, men under stress produce daughters. So uh, I'm a fairly stressed guy, <laughs> so I, apparently, but. Um, I think that I have the knack for, for right. teaching. Maybe one day. Right. One day when they kick me out of my own kitchens, so I'll, I'll figure something else <laughs> Hope out. Hope that doesn't happen. Uh, James, we're very jealous of Share Strength with your A-list of corporate partners. I know we have them too, but you have such an amazing list of corporate partners. That's what we say about you all uh, the time. Well, we're mutually <laughs> jealous then. 
Uh, but uh, tell us a little bit about how you attract them. I mean, obviously you've got this build that you can bring them to, but how do you attract them? How do you keep them? Because I think we can often attract them. We often keep them too, but the challenge is to really keep strengthening those relationships, keep bringing value to them. So what's, what's, your, what's your secret sauce for your corporate partner relationships? I think there are a lot of things. Our cause is something that everyone can relate to. So everyone understands the pressures that kids are under these days, regardless of what community you live in. And so it's very relatable. It also links to so many different outcomes. So if you care about childhood uh, physical health, play is part of the solution. If you care about childhood cognitive and creative development, play is part of the solution. Social and emotional well-being, play is part of the solution. Community development, economic development, play is part of the solution. Um, And all of those we bring with an equity lens that appeals to corporations who are looking to give back to the communities that they're in. Then you layer on top of that the ability to engage employees in such a deep way to have those intense experiences where at the end of the day you feel transformed by it. And you you made new friends. That's what happens. So I mean, you, you've created something, you've helped the community, and you've done it with a group of people that you didn't know. It's just so powerful. Yeah. So I think it's those multiple layers that that we can provide that uh, make what we do attractive to corporate partners. And I hope also that there's the element of how we're starting to work with cities where we're looking at that systems level change where corporations, many of our partners, enlightened partners who are trying to have an outsized impact, are looking at ways to really leverage the resources that they do have, both both the uh, financial resources and their people power to put it against something that can create large-scale change. You must have, so this is a sustainability question. So you have to have a relationship with some other partner in the community that mm-hmm. once the build is there, mm-hmm. who takes care of it, who maintains it? How's, how does that work? We find a a child-serving institution. So whether that's a Boys and Girls Club, a YMCA, a homeless shelter, or a public school, charter school, or um, a public park, anything that serves kids, we then work with them, and it's their responsibility going forward to maintain the play space, to activate the play space, and we help build their capacity through the process of building the playground so that they're set up for success to do those things. And we've had the benefit of just working with amazing nonprofits who are in the community day in and day out. We work nationally, so we've come in, we build the playground, and then we're on to the next project. Our partners are that link that common bond that maintains continuity on the ground to ensure that the kids in those communities have what they need to thrive. I have to get out and do another build. Absolutely. The last one I oh, did I'm was in. Yes. Yeah, I Mike, want it. Mike's in. Yeah. Uh, the last one I did was in Columbia Heights. Oh. And it rained cool. that day, but oh. we didn't care. It was, it was really good. It was really nice. And do you have some builds that don't get finished in six hours? You have to the things happen that you have to kind of come back and finish it, or do they all get built in one day? Every build is unique, but I would say most of them, the vast majority, get done in the six hours. And that's because it's amazing what happens when you get 200 people doing something in common purpose. So I build restaurants and um, in D.C. only, so I only have that experience. And I would say that the city is um, unique in the way that we are able to build at, a, at their pace so I'm interested, do cities welcome Kaboom in and kind of open the doors and roll out the red carpet and make sure that 
from a legislation standpoint, from a you know federal, from a city standpoint, you have the resource that you need. They come in quickly, and you're, I mean, six, if I could build a restaurant in six hours, whoo, right. I'd be a happy camper. Yeah, and I think speed is sometimes a double-edged sword with city government. You want to make sure that you can get things done quickly to meet the needs of your constituents, but at the same time, there are layers of approval processes and permits that are in place for sure. valid reasons, sure. but sometimes slow things down. I, th- I think the reason that cities are particularly interested in working with us is because we become the common glue that brings private resources to the table alongside city resources. And because we have that ability to authentically engage the community as part of the solution and to address equity issues. And what we're seeing in cities across the country, which is a really powerful trend, is focused on equity issues in a much more robust way than uh, cities have been in in the past. And also very interested in making sure community voice is respected and honored and lifted up through the process. Um, But cities are not necessarily set up to do that well. And they need partners who can come in and really help them to do that, who have the credibility with the communities that they're uh, trying to serve so that um, we can help them do that on a timeline that makes change possible in in a way that really uh, surprises and delights the community. Gotcha. That's such a short-term and long-term benefit. I wonder what else can be built in six hours. <laughs> have, have you thought uh, some about IKEA what, what's, furniture you yeah. can build in what's six replicated? Hours. Is there any other kind of social service that can that can learn from this six hour build? I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm sure there is, and anyone who's interested should come see us. It, it creates an interesting dynamic yeah. internally because when you're having a meeting and you're saying, "Oh, well, we need to meet for an hour," and everyone's like, "An hour? We could be." one-sixth of the way through a love playground that. by then. So, <laughs> so it places a premium on people's time. I, I'm not sure if you were there yet, but we came over to your offices when we were rebuilding. We were moving Share Our Strengths offices, and we wanted to get some ideas because we heard about how incredible your offices are. They have amazing space that just is you know speaks their culture. So there's a playground inside their office, and there's just – I think you have like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the yeah. conference rooms or in the cafe. I mean, just all kinds of stuff that really speaks to what, what Kaboom's about. And we were very inspired by it. And our offices, while we don't have a playground, but we did actually one of our conference rooms is called the playground um, because of the importance of playgrounds, what they, the role they play in summer meals. Absolutely. Uh, so that, that was a really big connection for us. But incredible space that you're in. Um, as we wrap up, this is a what's next question that you can think about while I ask you. Mike, um, well, what, the first thing I want to ask you is a must-try on both menus. Red Hen must-try, and what must somebody try if they haven't been to uh, all-purpose? And, and first-timers. First-timers. Right? Red Hen, Mezzanigatoni. The burrata. The burrata is great, but it changes. So the, so the one dish that's still in the menu since day one is the Mezzanigatoni with the fennel sausage, ragu, tomato, and pecorino. And it's, uh, it's one of those dishes that I could try every day, and it doesn't get old. Um, and it, it's the best best seller on that on that menu by far. Um, with the all purpose um, and two dishes that kind of uh, are at have the two dishes that continue to to wow people. Um, I would say the Caesar salad at all purpose, and I know it sounds very basic, but uh, no, a good Caesar salad is memorable. Yeah, a good Caesar yeah, salad yeah, can yeah. be life changing, and we uh, I think that we did it um, at all purpose. I think the other pizza focused dish would be uh, the Buona. And and all the pizzas when we opened up were named after joints that I would go to as a kid in my hometown. And what's on the Buona? The Buona is uh, it's uh, tomato sauce, mozzarella, New York pepperoni, 
uh, finished with Sicilian oregano and a spicy Calabrian chili honey. A little bit of uh, fresh basil cut with scissors. I haven't had lunch. Want one right now. It's yeah. delicious. I, I, again, one of those things that doesn't get old. Right. But pizza is uh, pizza and pasta. And we've Both referenced delicious. what's next for you, but what's next for you and where should people be looking for your next restaurant? Well, I mean, we are opening at uh, 79 Potomac Avenue at Dock 79, right across the street from Nationals Ballpark. We are facing the water, so come around the corner and see us. Um, we are focused on kind of diving a little bit more into the Italian-American experience and some of those kind of 50s, 60s-style pizzerias, those mob hangouts, that kind of food. You're going to see baked clams, oregonata. You're going to see garlic knots. You're going to see um, tomato-braised meatballs. Uh, you're going to see sausage and mushroom pies. You're going to see a lot of really fun stuff um, and a great uh, cocktail program, amazing beer program and wine program as well. Nice. Um, other than that, you're going to see me at all three restaurants. I'm not Again, I'm not looking really to to do anything but circle the wagons and make sure that uh, my staff's happy, make sure I can uh, try to cook some food. Hopefully, I don't mess it up too much. Um, And we're hoping to have you at our June 13th dinner, if your schedule aligns. I I would love to be a part of it. Um, And making sure I can talk to guests and catch up with everybody that I love seeing day in and day out. These restaurant openings, they tend to take me away from what I love doing. Um, but it only means that it's just a matter of time before I get back into it. So, so I don't imagine with three restaurants, two kids, and living out in Olney that you have a lot of time to try new restaurants. But if there was one restaurant in DC or or a place to drink that you know you want to share that you really love, it'd be great to hear. New, what it is. old, kind of mainstay, anything. Um, Maybe uh, something that would surprise everybody. Something that would surprise yeah. everybody. Special little hole in the wall, or. Or just your favorite place when you're not at your restaurants? So my favorite place when I'm not at my restaurants, honestly, I'm, I'm a very simpleton of sorts, and I like uh, consistency. I My first job cooking professionally was at Mon Ami Gabi in Bethesda, Maryland. And my wife and I love going there and having a cocktail and sharing a bottle of wine. Part and, of Let Us Entertain You, is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. And sitting and enjoying steak frites and... Uh, Frise salad, some steamed artichokes, and and honestly, it's it seems very basic, but I I love the consistency of it. For me, it's a nostalgic place. It still smells the same as it did 15 years ago when I started there. Well, that's a big part of why we love certain food. It Most reminds definitely. us of something when we're young. Most definitely, uh, not unlike playgrounds. Billy and I, Billy and I, we, my mom was a wonderful, sweet, loving mother, but she really could not cook. <laughs> it was bad. And one of the things that she used to make were these potato sticks that she would put in a pan with butter. Remember potato sticks in a can? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lord. So she'd take them out and put them in a pan with butter and salt and then put them on a paper towel and we'd sit in front of the TV and we'd love them. I mean, it doesn't sound bad. <laughs> it was, I don't even think they're on the market anymore. James, uh, what is next for you and Kaboom? What's on the horizon? That we can... um, you know, at, at Kaboom, we're really focused on uh trying to expand what people think of when they think about the built environment for kids. And so we'll continue to build great playgrounds and we're also extending play into everyday spaces, looking at things that are going to challenge older kids as well. And that's the new frontier for us and continuing to go deep with cities to make sure that we can create change at the largest possible scale. And how can our listeners find out more if they want to contribute or, or volunteer with Kaboom? 
you could go to kaboom.org and I can tell you one of the really special ways to help out is something that my girls do. And every every year for their birthday, instead of accepting gifts, they donate their uh, birthday to Kaboom. And they we have a birthday club that allows you to go online, set up a quick fundraising page and have your kids raise money for a cause that they care about and totally understand. Get them started early. I love Get them that. started early. And my, kids, and my kids have had the opportunity to build playgrounds with us as well. Um, and there's nothing like, and I'm sure, Mike, you experience as well, nothing like having your kids understand what you do for a living and and really get involved and really be part of it. I, I feel so lucky that way that, that my daughter couldn't help but understand a lot about not just childhood hunger, but knowing that there are people like James and Mike who are doing things in the community. So getting outside of herself, even outside of her own family, and you know, and, and seeing how many people are finding ways to share their strength and their talent. This was a really great conversation. I'm Mike Friedman, Red Hen, All Purpose. Thank you for being here. And James Siegel with Kaboom. It was, it's been great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Ad Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Ad Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.